Hello. Now, how are you getting on with your Christmas reading? I'm uh, uh, working my way through uh, this, Barack Obama, A Promised Land, first volume of his uh, autobiography, very exciting stuff, riveting, it says, on the back cover, and indeed it is, but it is 700 pages long of very small print, by my eyes anyway, and uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether I've taken on more than I can chew. In fact, I think sometimes William Caxton and his uh, inventing of the printing press has got quite a lot to answer for. If only it hadn't been invented, Barack Obama would have to write this in longhand, uh, probably by candlelight, uh, probably um, uh, uh, having to copy out each version of his own on parchment, and it would be a lot shorter. You know, there's another biography um, that I've been reading, and it's entirely different, uh, because it's not just the length that distinguishes Barack Obama's book from uh, the one I have in mind, the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus. It's in other ways, too. You see, Promised Land is, uh, is like most other uh, life histories. It's about famous people meeting famous people doing famous things and telling you the inside story as if you were the only one um, who was around uh, as to why things happened in the way that they did. And then you look at the biography of Jesus and it is so different. Take John's account, John which is probably more different from uh, the other three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, John, who doesn't even follow a direct chronology. You know, in John chapter 2, the second chapter, he's telling us about the cleansing of the temple, which we know took place in the last week of Jesus' life. And we don't know when Jesus and Nicodemus met. Was it, well, it was certainly in Jerusalem, uh, but was it at the beginning of his ministry or later on? We don't know. And uh, John, well, he has Jesus popping in and out of Jerusalem and Galilee like a fiddler's elbow. Uh, it doesn't seem like an ordinary chronology. But the other reason why the Gospels are different in their story of Jesus is that it's not about famous people and famous events. It's largely about day-to-day -day people who meet Jesus, people who would probably be forgotten in their own lifetime, if not immediately afterwards, were it not for the fact that Jesus talked to them. These are indeed the common people. And yet, however unusual and however obscure these people are, the person they met had more impact upon human history than all the other famous people put together. Now, in today's reading, uh, we have two people and one conversation. Uh, so let's just have a look at those two people, first of all, and then look at their conversation. On the one hand, there was Nicodemus. Now, what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, uh, he gets a mention only in John's Gospel, not in Matthew, Mark or Luke. Um, and he's a Pharisee. That's a separated one. That's literally what Pharisee means. There were about 6,000 of them at any one time. And the Pharisees had taken a vow uh, to ensure that they kept every jot and tittle, every aspect of the law of Moses. Now, when I say the law of Moses, I don't just mean the Ten Commandments. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't even mean the five books of the law, as they are called, the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. 
No, no, I mean what the Jewish people over decades had determined what it means to be a keeper of the law. The lawyers, the scribes, worked out the detail of everything. And so therefore you have, uh, for example, the Sabbath law. Let me just read to you a, um, a paragraph from uh, this book by William Barclay, who is a, um, a well-known theologian, well-known to me anyway. The best example of what these Pharisees and scribes did is to be seen in the Sabbath law. In the Bible itself, we're simply told that we must remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and that uh, that day has to be uh, with no work in it. But not content with that, the later Jews spent hours after hours generating and uh, generation after generation defining what work is and listing the things that may and may not be done on the Sabbath day. The Mishnah is the edited scribal law. The scribes spent their lives working out these rules and regulations and in the Mishnah the section on the Sabbath extends to no fewer than 24 chapters. The Talmud is the explanatory commentary on the Mishnah and in one Talmud, the Babylonian one, it runs to 156 double folio pages and we're told about a rabbi who spent two and a half years in studying just one of the 24 chapters of the Mishnah. So the scribes defined exactly what a uh, Sabbath day requirement was and all the other laws and the Pharisees committed themselves to observe it in every detail. So he was a Pharisee and we should remember by the way that Paul was also a Pharisee before he became a Christian. So that's some of his background, detailed knowledge of the law and how it was to be interpreted. But more than that, we know that Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was a number of 70 people, 70 men, they were all men, and it was their job to manage both the secular and the spiritual well-being of the people of the Jews. This was done uh, under the Roman law, of course. The Roman emperor had his uh, uh, power, he had his puppet as well in the form of Herod. But for the day-to-day -day management, it, this, this was left up to the Jewish leaders. They were the parliament, they were the house of bishops, they were just about everything. And what they said went and people uh, defied them at their cost. And so he was one of those 70 people who was a leader of the Jewish people. What more do we know about him? Well, as well as being part of the aristocracy, he was in all probability a very rich man. We know this because in John chapter 19, where it talks about, uh, describes Jesus' burial, it says here, Joseph of Arimathea was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing how much? Wait for it, 75 pounds. That's half the weight of a man in rich uh, perfumed goods in which to bury Jesus. And you don't get that sort of money without being pretty wealthy. So, you know, it's pretty wealthy. Anything else we know? Well, we know that he 
was by the text it suggests that he was quite a, a respectful person because he referred to Jesus as rabbi, even though Jesus had had no formal training and the uh, Sanhedrin would have required that a rabbi, to earn that title, had to have gone through all sorts of training. So he was respectful. But there's also a suggestion that he was rather patronising as well. Because after saying, uh, Rabbi, we uh, know you are a teacher come from God, he says uh, in a rather haughty way, um, uh, this is what we believe. We believe that you are a teacher come from God. Now that could be taken as a compliment, but it could also be in some sort of judgment. We've reached this view and we're pretty sure that we're right on this. And now we want to know a little bit more. And what else do we know? Well, finally, we know that he came to Jesus at night. This could have been uh, for one of two reasons. It could have been uh, that Nicodemus wanted an, un an uninterrupted time with Jesus and nighttime was the best for that. He might even have come on the instruction or with the encouragement of the rest of the Sanhedrin to do, be a sort of uh, investigating officer to find out about Jesus. We don't know. But the other reason is perhaps the more obvious one, that he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be seen by people around, so that gossip went, and he certainly didn't want to get back to the Sanhedrin that he was visiting Jesus. And there's plenty of evidence to support this second line. Apart from the reference in John chapter 19, showing him there at Jesus' burial, there is an incident in John chapter 7 where the Jewish leaders are deciding whether or not uh, Jesus uh, is going to be handled in one way or another. And Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And he's ridiculed for that. So I think there's a suggestion here uh, that Nicodemus was a secret believer. He may not have been at the time that he met Jesus the first time, but certainly by the end of uh, the Gospels, he was a secret believer. He was one who, after all, would be the source of the story that was in John's Gospel. Otherwise, where would it come from? There were just Jesus and Nicodemus to record it. And as far as we know, it would have been Nicodemus who would have told the early church. And as a secret believer, someone who could not be open about his faith without risking his life and livelihood, Nicodemus is the father of a long line of secret believers, of whom there are thousands today in Muslim-majority countries, in Hindu-majority countries, in totalitarian states, people who believe that their allegiance is to Jesus live in fear of their lives. They are persecuted and they are fearful people. But they are also people, and we know this from our own experience of uh, what work has been done by Jan with Flame, uh, by our own uh, Muslim convert uh, in the church, uh, who has even been threatened with death by his brother for having abandoned the Muslim faith. We know that for these people, Jesus is very real, more real than he is to many of us who have grown up in a conventional Christian country. And this has as their first uh, starter was Nicodemus, the first secret believer. So that's Nicodemus. We spent quite a long time on him. We're going to now talk about Jesus. Um, we'll spend a little less time on this because uh, Jesus is better known to us perhaps than Nicodemus was. Um, but um, we know that he was available, 
in uh, the middle of the night to this midnight caller. Uh, we know that he gave him time. We know that he wasn't overawed by being confronted by um, somebody of uh, such stature in the aristocracy as Nicodemus. Uh, we know that, for example, uh, he is referred to as the teacher of Israel. Jesus refers to him as the teacher, not a teacher, suggesting that he was perhaps the prominent theologian at the time. But Jesus saw him as he was, which was just an other man. So far, so good. So far, so expected of Jesus. But there are other uh, qualities that we see in this story, which we might not immediately associate with uh, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, um, as we uh, conceive him. He has no time for pleasantries. Before Nicodemus has got his first question out, Jesus has grabbed the conversation with a verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. Um, what bluntness there is there. And bluntness... Um, is not uh, short in Jesus's um, experience. Um, we find that um, he can be st stinging as well. Are you a member of, the, uh, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Quite sarcastic that, quite hard. And uh, uh, we see this in other encounters that Jesus has had and maybe see them in the rest of this sermon series as well. We know that the Pharisees are called whitewashed gravestones. We know that Peter was referred to as Satan. We know that the Syrophoenician woman who came for healing was compared to a dog. And what is more, we have to say that the answers that Jesus gives to Nicodemus are not a model of clarity. They're not easy to understand. He's uh, 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 sometimes obscure in his answers, which is good news for people who are paid to be theologians because they can spend their days poring over the text and helping us to understand them, but not so good for us when we read it and we think, how on earth is that an answer to the question that Jesus was posed? So we shouldn't think that love and firmness are incompatible or that being compassionate can't live alongside being demanding. So now to the conversation. Nicodemus expected it to be on his terms. He probably had his own list of questions that he wanted to ask Jesus. But Jesus uh, begins with, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, heralding some great spiritual truth that people needed to listen to. And he then says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he repeats it later on. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus' shorthand for life as God intends it to be. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think Jesus is saying, if you want to know and experience life as God intends it to be, abundant life, purposeful life, life in all its fullness, then there needs to be a change that's as radical as actually being born all over anew. Born again. Some Christians are described as born again Christians, but in truth, all Christians are by definition born again. And just as a child cannot of their own volition choose to be born, so the journey to faith is not simply a human decision. It's rather like a chemical formula with two ingredients. On the one hand, there's a person's readiness to let God have his way with them, to hand over the steering wheel of their life. 
to someone else. And it's not sufficient to make an intellectual decision that Christianity makes sense and therefore is going to be followed. And that's, I think, why Jesus stopped uh, Nicodemus in his tracks, because he realised that Nicodemus needed a reorientation if he was to find the kingdom. And then on the other hand, the other ingredient is God working through his spirit, described as through water and the spirit. I like to think of that as water and power. The spirit coming into a, ha a place that's been made available to it in order to cleanse it from the things of the past that stand in the way of realising the kingdom of God. False attitudes about yourself, things that you've done, weaknesses that you've had, habits that you've learned that are incompatible uh, with the kingdom of God. And then the power, the power that comes uh, when God fills us with being able to do what we could not do on our own, to be what we cannot be on our own. And then, uh, then he makes the difference. This change in direction, this new birth, is not simply a one-off event. It may well have a date when it can be marked that something happened, but it's a day-by-day -day experience, daily being cleansed of the things that we are weak on and daily being open to the Spirit in order to glorify God. And Jesus, and this is our last point, by the way, and Jesus uses an analogy which is helpful. It's taken from nature and it's both an encouragement and a challenge. He says that the spirit is like the wind. Indeed, the Greek word for spirit and wind is the same, pneuma, as in pneumatic. And he says, we don't know where the wind comes from, but that doesn't cause us to doubt that it actually exists. And in the same way, we don't know where the spirit comes from or how God works, but we know that he actually exists because we see its effect. Now, why is this encouraging? Well, because it means that we don't need to understand how God works to know that God works. We see the results. We see him around us and we know that all is well because we see him at work. And why is it a challenge? Well, it's a challenge because unless others see the effect of the Spirit in our lives, then how are they to know that the God that we profess to follow really exists? I never knew Jesus until I met him in somebody else. That's what we long that people would say of us. And that's both the encouragement and the challenge for us today, to recognise God at work as he is in our lives and also to be open ourselves to his spirit so that people around us can say, I have seen God at work in that person that I know. Amen. <laughs>